I never go into rooms with the intention of making people feel guilty or feel ashamed. My intention is, let's talk about the reality and what can we do to move it forward. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On this week's episode, we have a return guest, Tahara Taki. She first appeared on the podcast entitled Tahara Taki on Racism and Inclusion. It's actually one of our most popular episodes, so we've invited Tahara back to talk about her work as the Senior Project Manager for Urban Strategies on the Eugene Field Choice Neighborhood Project right here in Tulsa. Tahara will give us all the details, but in short, within five years, 25 acres of land will be cleared and rebuilt as the Tulsa Housing Authority carries out the mandate of a $30 million federal grant to transform the neighborhood on the west side of the Arkansas River. The plans call for a mix of apartment styles built around a neighborhood designed for walking with a five-acre park and, finally, a grocery store. And I want to point out that the housing authority residents who are moving out during reconstruction will have the first chance to return once it's done. Because it's their home. And we asked Mark Davis to host this episode for three reasons. One, he's awesome. Two, he's the association's chief programs officer. And three, it's because he once lived in an apartment complex in this Eugene Field neighborhood. So Mark has a unique understanding of the challenges people face and have faced for decades. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now. Tahara, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be back. All right. Glad to have you back here. Um, So we're going to jump right in. So there's a statement that was made, I think, uh, here in one of the local area newspapers by Aaron Darden, uh, who is the president and CEO of the Tulsa Housing Authority. He commented that uh, he had never really seen in the history of of this state, uh, this level of investment and affordable housing into one project. So with that first question, Tahara, why do you think this is such an important project right now? This project was granted to us by the U.S. Office of Housing and Urban Development. It's part of their Choice Neighborhood Initiative. And this initiative promotes a comprehensive approach to transforming neighborhoods that are struggling to address interconnected challenges in terms of distressed housing, poor health, high crime, and lack of capital. And so these barriers have a real impact on the Eugene Field neighborhood in West Tulsa. So Urban Strategies, which is the organization that I work for, was contracted to provide what's called the People Strategy. And this focuses on helping residents and providing resources and opportunities in areas such as health and wellness, economic mobility, education, and case management to get all children and family to stable and thriving. So as part of this initiative, we are working to provide these supports and case management for residents that are part of Riverview Park and Brightwater Apartments. And so for reference, kind of on the boundary of this project, it is bounded on the north and the east side by the Arkansas River, it's bounded on the south by 25th Street, and it's bounded on the west by Route 66. And so the number of families that we're serving uh, will continue to adjust because one of the apartments is continuing to lease out apartment units. But right now we are working with over 320 households, uh, which equates to nearly 850 individuals. And nearly half of those residents are under the age of 18. 
I was doing a comparison the other day of the city of Tulsa residents to the residents that we serve in the Eugene Field neighborhood. Uh, city of Tulsa, we have about 15% black or African-American, 64% white and 4% American Indian or Alaskan native. But poverty highly centralizes on people of color. So looking at our residents in the Eugene Field neighborhood, it's 41% black or African-American, 38% white, and then 15% American Indian or Alaskan native. Uh, in addition to that, 76% of our residents that are 18 or older identify as female. So that's reflective of the system of poverty that our nation has set up. It's people of color and especially single moms are incomparably affected by these oppressive systems. Uh, when we're looking at kind of the baseline data of our residents as we were coming into this project in the Eugene Field neighborhood, only 25% of our target residents in this neighborhood have a wage income. Um, in addition to that, the current average annual household income for target residents was less than $4,000. And again, that is an average annual household income. A lot of our residents don't have access to primary care doctors, including doctors for mental health. Um, and a large majority of the reason for that is there's a lack of facilities on the west side um, when it comes to providing health and wellness treatment, uh, preventative services, uh, mental health, lack of transportation, and also costs associated with mental health, um, as well as all health and wellness related resources is a barrier for our residents as well. But some of the highest needs that are identified by our residents are uh, basic needs such as access to fresh food um, as well as mental health support. Following those needs are kind of the additional um, needs that are for our residents such as transportation access and job training, which again, all of these things are lacking on the west side of Tulsa. So you get a lot of people, including community leaders, that are saying, well, why don't these residents just go get a job? They need to stop being lazy. They need to stop doing drugs. But my response to that is that there's a variety of factors that are associated with not having a job, especially on the West Side. You have to cover those basic needs before you're going to be able to qualify and want to go out and get a job. And so you have to think about covering those needs such as food, such as education, such as housing, before you're going to be able to qualify for a job, make it to a job interview, and retain a job. So it's hard to get a job if you don't have access to child care um, for your kids. There's no transportation to get to the job. There's no ability to get professional clothes. There's fear of losing benefits because the benefits cliff is a real thing. So this choice project and our team at Urban Strategies is really hoping to provide wraparound supports um, and services so that we can help our residents get out of distressed housing and have school that's um, adequate for their needs and their kids' needs while also focusing on their health and wellness. Wow. So that, that was a quite, quite a bit of um, uh, demographic information, quite a bit about poverty scale. Uh, you mentioned the benefits cliff. Uh, which uh, a lot of the listeners may not be familiar with. And if you're not, I would highly recommend that you uh, take some time, Google that, and, and go understand what it's like to be on a fixed income or fixed benefits based on a poverty level and then make a dollar over what's accepted and then lose your medical benefits, your child care services, or potentially even your housing uh, benefits. Um, and sometimes it's that fine a finite balance between taking care of your family 
or getting a job making, you know, minimum wage and losing all the accessible services that you need in order to properly take care of your family. So thank you for really um, addressing. Again, there's <laughs> we can, you know, really break that your your information down in so many different ways. But one of the things that really kind of jumped out is the that there's such a high number of females uh, in that Eugeneville area, and 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 the uh, the fact that you know a large majority of them are, are brown and black folks. What, why do you what do you attribute that to? Uh, I think there's a lot of systems that have gone on for hundreds of years um, that have led to residential segregation, that have led to policies of redlining, um, that continue to section off groups of people that are people of color into communities that are typically public housing or uh, affordable housing. And oftentimes those are in specific geographic communities within the neighborhood. And so I think over time, the community of West Tulsa has become that population that consists of people of color. Um, And as we know, just with poverty in general, a lot of women are stuck in poverty and taking care of multiple kids. And as we also know about Oklahoma, we incarcerate a lot of individuals, both men and women. And so a lot of households that don't have father figures, um, a lot of them are attributed to a number of factors. But one of those is the incarceration system in Oklahoma. With such a, you know, massive uh, multimillion dollar project that's going to impact the the lives of uh, hundreds and even thousands of individuals, both on a uh, ground level as far as the people who currently live there and then on a more economic development kind of uh, perspective. You know, why why is it that you think that a project of this scale uh, hasn't really garnered the amount of, uh, uh, it hasn't seemed to garner too much attention or acclaim that, that other projects in other parts of the city would have? Uh, the west side of town rarely gets attention unless it's negative attention like crime. Um, And we know that crime happens all over the city, but we seem to like to focus on the negative attention to only specific parts of the city. And so this leads to part of the psychological barrier when it comes to the west side, including the Eugene Field neighborhood. Uh, West Tulsa, including the Eugene Field neighborhood, has always been a point of you have to cross the Arkansas River to get there. Um, so a long, long time ago, it was a site for Native Americans, and later, later it was a site for cattle ranchers. And then as the country started to expand, rail and road bridges were built to span over the river. And so then the discovery of oil and the establishment of oil refineries resulted in a further population boom in the city and in Eugene Field. And so all of this continued with um, urban renewal. That was part of the mid-1960s which went beyond uh, removing some of the less desirable housing, but it also wiped out a lot of the commercial district in the west side of Tulsa as well. And so all that really remained on West Tulsa was some housing that was less than adequate, as well as some of the churches that are still there right now. Um, So it's a part of town that has refineries that surround neighborhoods, and the local quick trip and elementary school kind of serve as the hub spot of the Eugene Field neighborhood. And I think there's a variety of perceptions and mental models that people have about those who live on the west side of Tulsa. And these mental models, these biases, these stigmas that people have typically target people of color. They typically target people who are living in poverty. And often these perceptions and these stigmas are also held by community leaders, by city leaders, and they're 
held by people who are not informed about the history, they're not informed about trauma, um, and they don't provide that trauma-informed care. So these mental models and these stigmas continuously perpetuate for our residents, which keeps them held in the West Side. And then on the other side of that, there's also just the, the real aspect of the physical barriers, such as the river, such as the railroad tracks and the highways. And so this leads to very little attention to the West Side. Other barriers which, not, which prevents a lot of people from going to the West Side include uh, limited public transport. Um, it's really hard to get to the West Side if, unless you have a car and you have a reason to get there. Uh, lack of services on the West Side. There are limited job opportunities, um, confinement by the river, deteriorating affordable housing. So I think that the one time of the year that most people will actually venture to the Eugene Field neighborhood is for the annual Oktoberfest, which takes place at River West Festival Park. And it was so interesting and kind of frustrating for me this year as I was watching hundreds and thousands of people walk past and walk through these neighborhoods that have just generationally been impacted by poverty. And they're watching these families and without any sort of care or concern as they're walking over and they're about to go spend $15 to $400 on beer, but will never invest in their fellow Tolsons that live in this neighborhood. And so it, it's such a frustration to see. Um, and again, I, I understand that there's not a lot of reason right now necessarily to go to the West Side. And that's because of the years of disinvestment in that part of the city. Um, but again, we have to really think about all of our Tolsons and our fellow neighbors. And that's an area that typically doesn't get any sort of coverage. Where is the funding coming from for this? And, and who is behind this? Because this is a pretty big scale, brazen project, if you will. Uh, could you talk a little bit about who's supporting this effort? Absolutely. So the Choice Neighborhood Grant is actually funded by the U.S. Department of Housing, uh, which is a federal grant. It was awarded to Tulsa Housing Authority. Tulsa Housing Authority actually applied for the grant in partnership with 45 plus different organizations across the city of Tulsa in 2017. Choice Neighborhood really likes to focus on communities where this will be a sustainable development. So they don't want to throw millions of dollars into developing a community and then just everyone leave with no supports that are going to stay and help that community thrive after the project is complete. And so um, we have partners that are funding that include the Zero Foundation, the Kaiser Foundation, as well as a lot of nonprofits across the city. Uh, Tulsa Public Schools is a partner with us. Um, we have some organizations that are national organizations that are partnering with us on developing this. So this is really a collaborative effort in order to make change happen. And when you think about systematic and organizational change, it really has to take multiple collaborative partners in order for it to make it work. Throughout your discussion, you know, if you've pointed out issues of redlining, uh, inequality, the uh, disproportionate number of minorities uh, who have been systemically kind of placed in positions of poverty and having to unfortunately do without uh, in these very impoverished, uh, dilapidated areas. What type of uh, response have you got back? Because this kind of touches on some very sensitive issues that some people may have their own opinions about how do you what what responses have you gotten back from the people 
Uh, so I'm all about honesty and transparency, Mark. So uh, this project has been met with a variety of mixed emotions. You have residents and community members who are excited and they're eager for change, seeing this as much needed. Um, it's, it's time for this change to happen. But then you also have a lot of fear. You have a lot of anger, um, specifically from residents. There's, there's some of that anger um, because we're talking about people's housings. We're talking about their livelihood. And it's a big change for a lot of residents. It's a big change for the neighborhood. Moving and uprooting your family is disruptive. There's no easy way to put that. Um, but the conditions that these families are living in is not safe and it's not healthy for these families. Uh, we had a resident a couple months ago who was living there with her four kids and she wasn't understanding the purpose of the project. She was definitely very skeptical of the project. But it wasn't until the sewer line in her backyard, um, which had was dilapidated, which has been worn down from hundreds of years, caused sewer, sewage water to come up into her kitchen sink. And then she recognized, you know what, these are really not good conditions for me and my family. And so although it's a good thing and change can be a good thing, we also still recognize that this can be really, really difficult. And so our team really tries to provide wraparound support for our families that are living there before the move, during the move, as well as after the move. And so as part of this project, we really don't want cost um, and moving uh, costs especially to be a barrier. And so all relocation costs for families are paid for. So this is everything from security deposits, moving fees, application fees. And then we work with families one-on-one -on -one to really identify what are their specific individual goals as well as family goals? And how can we map out a timeline for how you can reach that for your family? Um, and we work with them for the duration of this project. So our case managers will continue to work with these families until 2024. Um, so our, we really want to work on connecting these families to the new communities that they're moving into temporarily, as well as making sure that they still have a connection back to Eugene Field. For some families, though, this is also an opportunity to explore a different part of uh, the city. So we have residents who are able to get a Section 8 voucher, which is a big deal for them because um, there's an 8,000 person waiting list for Section 8 vouchers in the city of Tulsa. And it would take you about two and a half years typically to get a Section 8 voucher. So because of this project, we're getting additional vouchers that go specifically to our residents. And so they're getting to see a different part of the city in a different lifestyle that they otherwise might not have been exposed to. Um, so we, we recognize kind of there, there's a lot that goes along into this project, but we're trying to support the families the best that we can. I mean, to say fantastic is kind of an understatement. And I'm glad that uh, you all have been able to really, you know, get in and, and kind of, I don't know if assimilate is the word, to, but real connect and establish some level of con community and connectivity with the, uh, with the residents that currently live there, because oftentimes agencies can see themselves as doing something good going into the community and the community is not really receptive to them because they don't look like them. They don't talk like them. They're not from there and they don't understand this quote unquote struggle. Um, and it's oftentimes, um, you know, options to help address issues may not be the options that they want because they weren't ever asked. And so that kind of leads to my next question. All these like spectacular, unique, awesome 
changes and improvement of the environment, both internal, uh, external uh, with the units, the, the new build, et cetera, et cetera. Were there any types of like uh, con- consumer insight groups or advisory groups established? Like, when did you all take the opportunity to hear the voice of the people to make some of these future changes in that the, in, the, in that area? Mm-hmm. So we've actually been working with the residents through the grant process all the way up into the actual provision of the grant here in Tulsa. And so as part of the grant process, you provide some of the baseline data. So we have team members that come out and meet with residents of the community to ask them about their housing conditions, to ask them about lack of resources and what uh, opportunities they would like to see in the neighborhood. They use all of this information as part of the grant that's then sent into Choice Neighborhood. Um, and that's part of the reason that the West Side was provided this grant from the U.S. Department of Housing. Once the grant was actually awarded, we continue to work with residents. Um, we still have a resident association that meets on site that provides continued support and feedback on the process, on things that they are concerned with. And each month we have a resident meeting. And so all residents are invited to come out and to give their feedback, to share their concerns, to ask questions from our staff as well as Tulsa Housing Authority. We really want to make sure that the people that are living in uh, Eugene Field neighborhood have a voice and that their voice is being heard. Oftentimes we are in rooms in high level positions and the voice of the people we're actually impacting are never heard. And so that's part of my role is to make sure that I'm hearing from residents. I'm understanding what's going on with residents and what their concerns are so I can make sure to voice that as we continue with this project moving forward. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. Um... You know, you, you mentioned the um, process from, from which this went, you know, the different stages of kind of how this award practice took place. I will say that um, as the as the word uh, gets out about this Choice Neighborhood project, uh, I've uh, been in you know communication with several individuals just by happenstance. And they said, um, well, this would have been great. Is this going to be offered to Northside Tulsa at some point in time? Has that? been presented to you? It has not been presented to me. I think what's great about this project right now on the West side is we're using it kind of as an incubator to try out certain strategies and partnerships in the hopes that if it works and we have long-term success and sustainability, that it's something that maybe can be replicated in the North side, maybe with some of the same sort of partnerships as well as some differing partnerships that would work best for the culture that fits the North side and those residents. <laughs> well, uh, I see you smile there. <laughs> well, uh, it's off. You're off to a great start. I mean, uh, again, uh, I think uh, this is a great project for which to get out and you know, uh, you know, try something new. You know, and get outside of the box and be innovative and really strike to the core of addressing a, a neighborhood that for centuries has unfortunately undergone um, a great deal of uh, oversight disinvestment and just, you know, some people have, you know, I, I hate to say this, but they've kind of referred to the West Side as the land of the lost. I, I've heard that before. And there's some threads of it that strike, you know, truthful. Well, you know, we're going to flip the script. I, this is my second time on the podcast, so I think I'm going to get one question out of this. Um 
I know that you actually used to live in the Eugene Field neighborhood. Can you share a little bit about what it was like growing up there? Well, you know, listening to you speak here to hire about some of the conditions that some of the current residents have described to you and just kind of doing your um, information gathering in regards to what the what it's like to live in that Riverview apartment area. I lived there, I uh, was just thinking about this earlier, 35 years ago. And man, it's, whew, it's disheartening to say, sadly, not much has changed. And that's 35 years. And, and I think you just looking around that place. I drive through there every so often, either going to a business meeting or something, you know, some of the, some of the trees are still there. Some of them are gone. You know, you mentioned quick trip and uh, earlier and uh, uh, OSU, uh, th- those, those stores weren't even there when I lived there uh, 35 years ago. So and in some ways, I think there's been some very incremental steps forward uh, to try to help address such a downtrodden, kind of forgotten about part of our beautiful town, uh, which is saddened. But really, there's not much has changed. Um, the apartment complexes, they still look relatively the same on both sides of 21st. Yeah, it was uh, completely, you know, a neighborhood, if you want to call it that. I don't know if I would even call it that. It's, it was a space uh, in our area that is pretty much um, filled with a lot of uh, impoverishedness. Uh, again, uh, limited to no jobs, limited to, uh, limited to no uh, transportation or access to transportation. I don't, as it, as I think about it, even right to this day, I don't know where a person would actually go do their grocery shopping for any any semblance of uh, nutritional food options. I think there used to be a, a hamburger place there, I think, and they tore that down. I don't know. I can't remember because I don't really go there much. I, I'm trying to watch my words here. It's just sad, and I and my heart goes out to the people because a lot of young. Afro-American kids like me, they won't get out, though. That's where my heart breaks. Um, They will be incarcerated. We know this. Look at the equality indicators. Uh, They will maybe, maybe get out of high school. Uh, The failure rate or or the graduation rate is extremely low uh, in comparison to uh, South Tulsa's uh, educational attainment, as far as higher uh, degrees, that's very limited to, to none. Again, I'm just, all, all the uh, opportunities to fail, all the traps uh, to cause a, a, a blunder or incarceration, there's so many systems, uh, whether they're direct or indirect, that are structured in, in order to be a barrier and and cause a person to kind of uh, to to not excel, to not exceed, to fail. They're all right there in a microcosm of a small, you know, five acre community, and it's like a gauntlet that's just 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 waiting to to pull you down and to pull you under. And I literally feel, in, in so many regards, you know, reflecting back, you know, thirty years later that. I mean, it's it was something definitely bigger than me, and, and by a blessing, 
that I that I'm sitting here right now as a graduate level licensed clinician and chief programs officer here at the Mental Health Association, where I can now make a positive change for those young kids now that live in these neighborhoods across our community to help them overcome some of these systemic barriers. And and so they can actually achieve to greater heights in their own life. And it's just a blessing that I'm sitting here today. So thank you for that question. Well, it's a, it's a blessing to have the ability to work with you through Mental Health Association and all that you do, not only for our residents, but for the city of Tulsa. All right. Now we're going to, as you said, Tara, flip the script back over to you because <laughs> I'm the interviewer here. So we're going to get back to this. Um, so um, this project is a perfect way, I see, to really deconcentrate poverty in Tulsa. This is, and and I feel like, you know, if we could replicate this at least, you know, four or five more times in these real high concentrated poverty areas, I think we would really be moving the needle uh, in a positive way and, and truly become a top 10 state in our country in regards to overall quality of living and really be on a uh, top 10 of all those social determinant factors that we talk about on a regular everyday basis. So with that said, Tara, if I give you a, a, a magic wand, you know, what are some of the things that you think could further deconcentrate poverty across our community? You know, I think that this project, and maybe it's just because I'm so close to the project, is anything but perfect. Um, but that's just because it takes so much dismantling of inequitable systems and deeply rooted structures that have been in place for hundreds of years. And so we really have to focus on equity for all. And when we say all, we need to truly mean for all. And so effective change really requires investments in the local community that bring wealth, that bring opportunities into the more impoverished sections of our city. And we need significant improvements when we think about services for people with mental health conditions, when we think about substance use, when we think about those experiencing homelessness, as well as investments in education. So if I had a magic magic wand, there's a lot, a lot that I would want to focus on. Um, some of those things would be, I think we need to focus on adequate housing for all, um, including more landlords that will accept Section 8 vouchers across the city. Um, I think we need that uh, access for what I consider basic fundamental human rights for all, so healthcare. Um, including mental health access. We need access to fresh food. We need quality education with racially diverse schools. Um, and of course, the housing piece, those are all what I consider basic human rights. I think we need to reduce economic inequality in some ways that we should consider are an increased minimum wage from $7.25, which it has been for at least 10 years now. Um, I think we need to look at building assets for working families, so access to fair, low-cost financial services as well as home ownership programs. Um, I think we need to look at really if we're going to get past the programs and the events um, sort of model, I think we need to look at changing structures and policies that have been systematically oppressive. So again, residential segregation, which has been formally um, illegal, but again, it happens on an informal basis, um, redlining, unequal pay, all of those things continue to keep certain groups of people in impoverished uh, neighborhoods and in impoverished parts of the city. 
Um, and something that you and I had talked about previously, um, addressing the benefits cliff by gradually reducing benefits as salaries increase. Um, I think that's a really important way to look at deconcentrating poverty. But the most important thing that I wish I could just use that magic wand for is erasing the mental models that people have. Erasing mental models that people have about those living in poverty, about those um, individuals and people of color, and about women. Because as soon as you can erase all these hundreds of years of mental models that have created these stigmas, I think we're going to have an opportunity to really work and collaborate without these mental models about other people getting in the way, um, and hopefully find ways that we can create structures and policies and systems that really are for the benefit of all people and not certain people. You know, we could get really philosophical here. And so I'm, my next question is, how would you even start that? I mean, you, you say addressing some of these narratives, these mental models of inequality, um, um, superiority, uh, inferiority. Where, 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 would, where is the starting point with that? that that's, a, that's a big task. Mark, you said if I had a magic wand. Um, <laughs> but okay, I, think I just pulled your mag magic wand away from me. This is just, <laughs> this is raw and uncut. Mental health yes. download here. <laughs> yeah. Um, the biggest thing, which is something that hasn't happened for a long time, is we have to actually have the honest and raw conversations. You have to bring transparency and the vulnerability of what's really going on. And something that our organization really focuses on is looking at the data. What is the data saying? What is important for me, though, while we look at the data is to put the data in context. Um, because again, you can take data and you can make it say what you want it to say. But I think the context and the conversation about the data pieces is so important. But we need to share that. We need more people to go to the West Side um, and actually talk to the residents that are impacted by the social services, by are impacted by city council decisions, um, by statewide decisions. You need to talk about those that are in the most marginalized, vulnerable communities. Because if you are helping those individuals, individuals, you're going to be helping a lot of other individuals that are a lot more privileged and have a higher socioeconomic status. And so it all comes down to the communication. It comes down to actually talking to the people that we say we are intending to serve um, in order to really provide the services that they need. Yeah. Uh, you you have a fascinating job. Um, one, you I do think you are uh, very fortunate to be a part of such amazing project with the Eugene Field uh, Transformation Project or, or Choice Neighborhood Project. And so, uh, again, just to, to kind of dig a little more into that line of thinking, you know, you, you bring forth a lot of situations, issues, feelings, and emotions when you're talking about uh, inequality and, and who's suffering and who's not. And I can remember when you came to our uh, leadership team meeting and you're talking about this and we, and we have a fairly, uh, uh, a, a large group of people who are open mind and we're by the, you know, we're for the people, you know, and by the people, if you will, do you get generally a fairly receptive, warm embracing when you're, when you're talking to groups about these issues? Uh, honest answer is no. Um, but that's because it's it's a difficult conversation. 
Um, when you're talking about trauma, when you're talking about racism or discrimination, um, when you're talking about inequity, those are really difficult conversations. There's always a sense of feeling of uh, shame or guilt. Um, and so those are really difficult feelings to grapple with of I should have done something. Why haven't I done anything? Um, the word privilege is thrown around a lot. And so a lot of people kind of back away from those conversations as well. But they're really important conversations. And so when, when I come in, and again, I, I like to, to say things that are important to say and that that's not being said right now, um, because on the line for me, I have 850 residents. Um, and these are real people. These are people who are human, just like the rest of us, that have worth and that have value um, and are not currently being served. And if we are not having these difficult conversations nothing is going to change. And so although I go into rooms, which often are with people of a specific race and of a specific gender, I often will uh, make some people uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that because I can handle the discomfort. Um, but what's, what's really important is actually moving the discussion along. I never go into rooms with the intention of making people feel guilty or feel ashamed. My intention is Let's talk about the reality and what can we do to move it forward. Man, you are really, really good. I have to give it to you. I, I love, I love your responses. Um, wow, because you do have a challenging job, and it's to it's to get people to hear you, to hear you first, or maybe even feel your passion and your love for people first. I always try to when I'm having conversations about you know race and demographics and police brutality or who has access to jobs or, or quality of education or or the life expectancy differences from North Tulsa to South, from South Tulsa. You know, I, I like to start from a position of humanity. We're, we're, re we're really all in this together, you know, and if, if everyone else, you know, if middle class, lower middle class, if we're all doing well, as our CEO, Mike Bros here likes to say, hey, rising waters float all boats, you know, uh, let, let's all work together. And I try to separate it and get out, get away from the 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 color, what color people are or what your religious affiliation or uh, what your social economic status. And I try to focus on love for humanity. I try to talk about it from an angle of humanity. And if we can do that, then, then let's, let's at least hold hands around that concept, around that. And, and let's start the conversation from there. No, no one wants to see a crime baby. Right. Uh, and so I think, um, again, I, I really, uh, take my hat off to you and, you know, commend you and honor you for the tough work that you're doing to bring light. And helping people to be uh, better at having these complicated, challenging situations. Uh, no, no reason to feel shameful. Be a part of the change. You know, um, I think we're almost at a point to uh, wrapping up here. I think um, speaking of wrapping up, I think with this, with the project that you're working on, um, what are you looking for most at experiencing when this uh, Eugene Field neighborhood kind of the transformation or the, the, uh, the, 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 the grand finale when it's done, what are you anticipating most? You know, I think there's a lot of great aspects to this project. Um, the, the physical 
buildings that are going to be there. The the new housing, I think, is going to be beautiful. We've gotten community feedback, and they're really excited about what the housing will look like. Um, there's actually going to be a grocery store on 23rd, which our residents are super excited about. Um, there's going to be a new West Tulsa uh, park. And again, they're providing feedback into that as well. All of that's super exciting for me. But what's most exciting is I want to see all of these residents, all of these families, hopefully in a better place and experiencing this new neighborhood that are and they're thriving. I want to see all of these families successful and thriving, whatever that means for their specific situation and their specific goals and dreams. But I want them to be able to come back to this neighborhood. I want them to be in a better place than where we are right now with this neighborhood and feel like they have a better support system around them, like they have access to opportunities and resources that they never could have imagined. Um, so what I'm really excited about is the, the human and social capital that's being put back into this neighborhood when it's complete. Wow. So, um, and I'm, and, and that's exciting kind of individually, you know, for the individuals, you know, there. Um, how do you think that the rest of the community could potentially help and support this endeavor? Uh, because honestly, you know, it may be surprising to you, but a lot of people actually don't know that this, you know, project is even taking place. And I, and I don't mean just the, the residents. I mean, the community of Tulsa, a lot of people, it doesn't matter what position or job they're in or what their uh, pay scale is. A lot of people don't notice it's taking place. But so what would you uh, recommend uh, to people to kind of if they want to be a part of helping out? What could they do? If your organization, whether it's nonprofit, whether it's a private company, um, if your organization wants to be part of this project, um, we are always looking for volunteers. We are always looking for individuals to come out. Um, again, we have so many kids that live in this residential property. Um, we're always looking for mentors as well for these kiddos so that they can see something else than the impoverished side of West Tulsa. With the nonprofits, we're constantly building partnerships across the city of Tulsa to make sure that we have access to a variety of resources for the individualized needs of our residents. Um, any sort of donations, any sort of additional services that you would like to offer for our residents, that's always great as well. Um, but really, other than that, just come to the west side. Um, my, my main thing is I want more individuals to come to the west side and to see it beyond the River West Festival Park. There is a Peruvian restaurant over there that I do recommend that's on 23rd Street. Uh, so that's a yeah. great place to start if you are wow. looking for something on the west side. Um, but beyond that, just get to know the individuals that live there because I can guarantee that they are a lot more similar to you than you imagine. And their stories will move you. I am absolutely humbled and honored to work with these individuals. Wow, that's great, that's great. And uh, as we always say here, as we wrap up on a mental health download, go do good things. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark.